This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links. And our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome Book Club for August of 2017. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is The Captive Flame by Richard Lee Byers, who we will hear from later in the episode. And with us in this episode, as always, is Eric Paquette, who teamed up with Jeff for the interview. Eric! Hello! How are you guys doing? Doing all right. Doing okay, trying to get rid of Gen Con crud. Oh, still? Oh. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. I was lucky I did not get Gen Con crud. Woohoo! So. Congrats. Yes. Uh, so next month we'll be reading the book Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. And we're set to finish it at the end of October, so please feel free to join us. But first, our sponsor. So our sponsor is, on this episode, Noble Knight, a game store that specializes in finding out-of-print products. My pick for this episode is called Dreams of the Red Wizards. It is a 1988 AD&D game book focused entirely on the country of Thay and the Forgotten Realms. Uh, they are often depicted as villains in D&D, but in the book that we read for this episode of the book club, uh, they are also Thay is also the origin of the main character, who is no longer living in Thay, but is from there and was previously caught up in the plots of the Red Wizards. If you want to see some of the history of the country and of the Red Wizards themselves, check out this long out-of-print product, currently selling for $18. And if you buy this or anything else at Noble Knight, be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today! And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. Now on to the book for this month, The Captain of Flame. Yeah, so book one of the Brotherhood of the Griffin series, uh, The Captive Flame. Who wants to tell us what The Captive Flame is about? Eric does. Eric does. I suspected you would say that. Well, Captive Flame, basically, it's a second series after the from characters from the Hunted Lands trilogy previously, which were basically the formation of, of this, the Brotherhood of the Griffin, which is a missionary group. You have several stories going on. Did you say missionary group? No, a mercenary group. Okay. <laughs> Just yes. wanted to be clear. <laughs> yes. But yes, they're a large group. They have griffins, all that. But in this case, it follows uh, Aof and Jersey and Gaiden. And I know almost as they are going in Ch- Chestia. Chesenta, yes. Chesenta. And uh, there is the old leader, I believe, of Ch- Chensia, the dragon, uh, Cesar. Yep, Chazar. Kind of I'll, I'll, Chazar. I'll school you in all the, all the realm's pronunciations, at least, at least as I pronounce them. So. Yeah. That was, has left a while and now is trying to come back to rule Chensenta. Chesenta. <laughs> So uh, he is trying to recruit the brother of the Griffin to help him come out. The first part, they are trying to solve murders of the Green Hands, which seems to be a sort of terrorist group of magicians in mm. the country, since the country doesn't quite like agents. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that so so this book and and the series in general is set in the the fourth edition era of the Forgotten Realms, uh, and so the main character uh, is is spell scarred because that's a thing. Um, Chazar has gone missing. The world is dramatically different now. The Dragonborn have shown up. The Genasi have shown up, uh, and and and. Chacenta is a setting that is uh, culturally sort of uh, biased against magic users. You know, the, um, the government or whatever recognizes their value that they have, but there's definitely um, some not so subtle overtones about uh, discrimination and what have you uh, in terms of, uh, in this case, using uh, magic users as the analogy for whatever discriminated group might exist in the real world. And for me, uh, I don't, and I don't know if it was just because I was sick or not, but I felt kind of like someone had taken me in a rowboat, thrown me in the middle of a lake, and told me to sink or swim. Yeah. Because it felt like, because I know you said like it was after the spell plague, but it felt like there's a lot of old history too. Mm. Like, uh, like what? Uh, a lot of like the Red Wizards of Thay mm. and. Uh, I don't know if I was supposed to know the dragon or not. Yeah, no. The so so yeah, I, I had I had not an entirely dissimilar experience. I had a really hard time following the characters. We basically had six main characters, and they all split up into pairs and ran off and and did three different plots uh, at the same time. Eventually, I mean, they all started off with so try to solve the green hand murders, but then they they split off and did these other things, and. and I guess that's all fine, except that I didn't really feel like I knew the characters. Like, I got to about the halfway point, and I realized I, I have no idea who's who. And I had to look it up on, like, the Forgotten Realms wiki to see who, at least get some of the characters sorted out. Oh, that one's an archer. Got it. That's the dwarf. This is the mage. Um, you know, so I started to sort out some of it that way. But even then, it was, it, uh, you know, I didn't feel, like, innately that that's who they were. And I think some of that may be that this is not intended to be a, a starting point right the you i think right. you are intended to have started with the haunted lands which honestly is a book series i've i've been interested in because i like Thay, and i had a, have a lot of interest in in Thay as a setting not just as a villain in the world but i haven't read it at this point and so uh, i was a little lost um and then there's the bit with with chazar and you mentioned like you weren't sure if you were supposed to know about chazar or not and and I'm not entirely sure that you needed to know about him or not because the Chazar storyline to me felt, I don't know what the word is, uh, like they, I feel like they stumbled upon accomplishing that mission without really trying. Yeah. You know, like they, they were told, hey, there's reports of some dragon over here in the hills. There's some rumors that might be Chazar. You should totally go check it out. And they go to check it out. They get themselves captured. They escape from capture. And while just sort of walking through the forest or along the countryside, accidentally wander into the Shadowfell where they discover Chazar is. And it wasn't this other dragon the whole time. And it's like, well, that feels a little anticlimactic. <laughs> you know, like like if the whole if the whole point of the star story is, is freeing Chazar from imprisonment and explaining where he's been all this time, um, you know, fine, I, but but it felt like it happened on accident. Like the the characters didn't make that happen. It would just sort of happen to them. Yeah, they get warned that somebody's seen a dragon occasionally during a new moon, but it is kind of treated like, yeah, whatever. Okay, we'll keep our eye out. Right. Uh, not like this is a big thing that you have to go and do. Well, and, and to this, you know, having finished the book, I don't know if the dragon that was seen sometimes during a new moon was Chazar. Uh, because, right. Because there was this other dragon that had imprisoned him that was that was not living in the Shadowfell, but was popping back every now and then to check on his prize. Right. Um, you know, and so for all I know, it was that dragon that was being seen. Yeah, the, the vampire? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I was figuring... That in the real world, who's the one that was popping here and there? Because their face, but when they went to the Shadowfell and face of Chazar, I was like, oh, okay. So there was a bait and switch that we were expecting. Right. But yeah, no, so the Chazar storyline seemed um, accidental to me, which, I mean, it's not the only Forgotten Realms novel I've read where it felt like the story was happening to the characters, not because of them. Um, and then the other, the other storyline, the only one we haven't talked about yet is, is 
the one that dealt with, um, I guess, building relationships with the the Dragonborn of Timanther and fighting giants, Ash giants and stuff. Which was, I mean, it was kind of cool seeing the depiction of Timanther and feeling like it was the same setting that Aaron Evans has been writing about. Uh, and I really enjoyed that, and I, I kind of enjoyed the fights and whatever, but I wasn't ever really sure what the point of that whole storyline was, you know? Yeah. Seem, that, that one seemed to be just, okay, this is something that's happening on the sideline while our heroes is doing, or, or the main characters are doing stuff, so. Well, yeah, it was almost just, and, and I guess uh, Richard, the, the author, almost, uh, I guess, kind of said in our interview that you know his goal was to keep all of the six main characters busy and give them a spotlight so um that storyline didn't have seem to have a clear goal um other than give those people something to do that said the the green hand um the green hand murders storyline and and that murder mystery and whatever uh i actually enjoyed that bit uh quite a bit i enjoyed the chazar bits too it just felt accidental you know like it like the the characters didn't have enough agency um for my liking i i, I like realm stories where where gods or uh, you know massively powerful creatures are meddling in people's affairs and stuff so so the idea of, of stumbling upon chazar the the dragon that professes to be a god um that, that's that's fun and entertaining for me yeah well it's, it's that interaction with chazar or them not having much agency feels a lot like the first part of the story yeah. Which will probably develop more. Well, we know from having discussed with it, it does develop more. Right. It's two books. So, possibly it's more of here's this is happening, and then hopefully they get in future books more agency and control and decide what to do with this dealing with this big, huge red dragon. Sure. God. Well, and, and I guess, spoiler alert, more, uh, more so than others, because I'm looking ahead to, to other books. Um, if you look up descriptions of the Brotherhood of the Griffin, and in fact, uh, Mr. Byers did this himself during the interview sometimes, um, the, the description of the Brotherhood of the Griffin series is the story of this mercenary group working for the great dragon Chazar. So in, in many ways, this book is just a, a, a forward or a prelude to the actual story because it's all, you know, because that storyline is all about how, Chazar came back and, and was released, you know, so. Man, I know there was this, near the end for AF, there was a storyline too of the assassinations they were investigating that seemed to be separate from the Green Hands, from what I gathered. The what nations? The assassinations. Oh, the assassinations. Yeah, see, see, I, th- I kind of got the impression that the Green Hand murders and, and, uh, this other stuff, and then the, with the the what is it, the Abishai and and all that, um, I kind of got the impression this was all sort of it turned out to be um, plots, Connect. plots uh, uh, under the machinations of this cult of Tiamat. Possibly because when they because when they caught some of the killers, I thought the killers that they caught that that were dragonborn, and that confused everybody because they didn't have the normal markings of Dragonborn and they didn't have the powers of Dragonborn and all that. I thought that was all, I thought those were the green hand killers and that's how it all connected back to, to the Abishai. Cause it turned out that's, you know, that's what it wasn't Dragonborn. It was Abishai and, and who would change their shape. And am I saying the name of those, of those uh, creatures correctly? <laughs> Abishai. Well, that, that's how I would, Abishai would be the, how I all would right. pronounce those. <laughs> So, what are Abishai? Uh, they're, they're, what are they, demons or devils? They're devils. From what I recall, they were introduced in 4th edition. They were devil dragons. Basically, dragon-born devil creatures. They serve Tiamat. Uh, they, they definitely weren't introduced in 4th edition. Uh, Abishai had been around for quite some time. In fact, they, they play, they, play uh, they, they show up occasionally in the old Planescape Torment game. And that was, okay. during, that was during the AD&D era. Yeah, that would have been second edition, yeah. So. But, but like many things in fourth edition, I, I suspect maybe some of their story had, had been tweaked and changed because I don't remember them in previous editions being particularly tied to, um, to Tiamat. Yeah. They were just another type of planner creature. You know? 
Well, I remembered them in the uh, Draconomicon Chromatic Dragons book ah. for fourth edition, and they tie them to the other side to Tiamat, to Tiamat. and Chromatic Dragons. So, yeah. so how much yeah, did? Looks- no, go ahead, Trace. I was going to say, it looks like the original one, original reference might be uh, from Frank Metzer in January 1985, Dragon so, Number 93. So it goes way oh. back. So, yeah, first edition. You were going to ask something? I was, and now I don't remember what it was, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to remember that, because you said that the main, the main character is mainly paired off, like there's two in go in each story, I think. Well, sort of. I mean, uh, the main char- the main main character. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Oath. Aoth. I pronounce Aoth. Aoth. Like he runs off on his own for a while, but then um, at the end, the the cleric kind of joins him, the cleric of the party, and then ends up channeling divine power, and that that becomes a whole thing because you never sort of got the impression that her god was it, it was directly interfering in that way. But other than that, yeah, wasn't it two uh, of the lieutenants, I guess, running off? And I didn't have any impression, like, uh, and, and Eric, you may have picked this up from our interview. I didn't, I wasn't sure even what the size of the Brotherhood of the Griffin was. Um, you know, I had the impression it was maybe dozens of people and mostly these six or whatever with some support staff or, and whatever. Um, but, but. Mr. Byers uh, said, well, he, he's never specifically given it a number and intentionally, so nobody would like be counting and wondering how many, you know, how many people could possibly be left. It looks like you killed them all or whatever. But he was talking about it being in the, in the size of thousands, which leaves me wondering from big chunks of this story, like, where'd all the other people go? <laughs> like, what are they doing, you know? If this is the start of them working with Chazar, I kind of feel that they're just at the start and they don't have the thousand they may have well no so the uh he he mentioned that in the first chapter he makes a reference to the brotherhood of the griffin arriving on multiple ships because it took that many ships to get to carry them all from thay so they were already large when they showed up i just didn't i just didn't necessarily pick up on it the first time and and then it leaves me wondering knowing that now uh, where the heck where the heck are all those soldiers this whole time I don't, I don't think that it would be thousands if there were multiple ships, maybe a few hundred. Well, I'm just telling you what the author said. <laughs> no, I, I do remember him saying that, or which or they will, people will hear it later on. Yeah. Thousands seem, does, does seem really big for me for an army yeah. in, in this sort of a setting. Like thousands yeah. seems like a huge army. Yeah. He did say that it was, it was a mix of support, infantry, cavalry, plus the, the the high ops being the ones being the Griffin writers, right? And that one, I I would suspect more to be in the dozens, not the thousands. Oh, I mean, at this point, I think we we got the impression that it's it's you know those six plus maybe uh, a couple more. Yeah. And I and and I I'm not going into a lot of detail on the six because, like I said earlier, like. I have a hard time keeping them straight. I know there's the cleric, there's the mage, there's the archer, uh, the, and there's others. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. Although that said, I really like the main character. I think I thought Aoth was uh, was very interesting. What did you guys think uh, his class would be if you satted him up? I was thinking they're like fighter or maybe sword mage. Okay, Tracy, what do you think? I have no idea. No idea. Yeah. Well, the the, the wiki lists him as a sword mage, which kind of changed my impression of him as I continued to read about him. Like, oh, that starts to make a little more sense when, like, when he describes him calling on the powers of his various tattoos. Um, that's not in my. It, it suddenly occurs to me that's not him calling on spell plug powers because why would he have that many spell plug powers? That seems weird. Like most people, you know are plague touched or whatever and would have like a weird thing that they do. And he already has that with his, with his sight, right? Uh, he basically has what? True sight. Something like that. Yeah. And, um, true but, sight and immortality. Yeah. And all, but all these other things, you know, uh, keeping himself alive and being able to take a hit and, and, uh, channeling energy into his, into his attacks and that kind of stuff, um, that he describes as activating the power of a tattoo or whatever, I think is, is, 
a reference to the idea that he is has been infused with some level of magic from his time in Thay, and those are his Thayan tattoos that aren't based on his spell plague uh, or his plague touched abilities. So, so suddenly Sword Mage makes a little more sense after I think through it that way, you know. Well, I, I like Jersey, the mage that was knows that the one that remembers me more of being distinct of my yeah. characters. And that was the one. Uh, of, that was the one that that helped free Chazar, right? Yes. Yeah. And I rather like the. I don't remember the name of the companion that was um, was with her, but but. Um, yeah. The way the way that character was depicted in the audiobook was fairly memorable because he was, you know, very sort of charismatic and nonchalant about, you know, horrible life threatening danger <laughs> that was kind of entertaining. Um, and then the other two characters, though, were were most like one of them was the archer, I think, that was on the um, on the 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 uh, Dragonborn storyline, um, and the other one. Was that Curran, the dwarf? Was that the yeah? Was that the dwarf? That sounds right. I I, I was. I thought Curran was a dwarf. That's, yeah, that, yeah, it was. What not too sure about? Who was the one that talks to the wind? Was that the was that the wizard? One of the characters had this thing where they would like talk to the wind, and when they went to a new area, they were like, "Well, so what do the winds tell you here?" And says, "Well, I I don't know. I haven't gotten to know them very well yet, and whatever, because you know it was new winds and all that." Was that the wizard though? I can't. I can't remember now. See, it's so it also jump. It jumbles all so so much for me as I tried to sort through these characters. I think I, I think we would have really probably benefited um, going back and doing the previous series, um, and being introduced to these characters sort of slowly over time. So, although the way that the way that Byers was talking about it seemed the first book dealt seemed to be more on AF. Till yeah, the end, which is fine with me, because yeah. he's the character I had the most interest in. So, yeah. I like the idea of a Thean who's not a complete jerk and, and evil and whatever. I like complicating the the things that are supposed to that that people take as black and white. You know, yeah. whether it's yeah. whether it's me teaching history to my seventh graders or or you know Thay's the big bad evil, but are they all? You know, yeah. There's always sometimes some pockets of good that are just trying to do a resistance, or well, and, and I don't know that that's him either. Like he's no. not a resistance sort of guy. He wasn't, you know, whatever. He picked a side, and it wasn't the winning side, but it was the less evil of the sides. So, like, he's definitely the protagonist. I don't know if I'm willing to call him a hero. You know, we haven't seen him make any sort of sacrifices for the greater good he's making the sacrifices to, to be a professional and do his job, you know? He makes a decision. He moves the story along, right. except for certain stories, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, so any other thoughts? I had, like, a really hard time with the book. Okay. Beyond, uh, beyond the difficulty sorting characters? Yeah, and, and it's weird. I think the first thing to say is that it was... It's a book, I believe, from 2010, which is approximately, you know, seven to eight years ago, depending on when it was written. Mm -hmm. uh, but the treatment of women, so it's kind of weird because there are a lot of women in it. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of, like, threats of rape, attempted mm -hmm. rape, mm -hmm. and then comments about women's bodies. Like, you introduce to a female uh, uh, character, and it's like, she's pleasantly plump. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which has a lot more to do with, like, how one views her rather than anything rather than an actual description of her of her appearance yeah or even just like who she is and what she does like it, it's a lot of times it mm -hmm. felt like women yeah. were still kind of being reduced to their appearance mm -hmm. while they're also doing some kick-ass stuff outside sure. of it yeah yeah, yeah. Like, President Club tells you more about the narration rather than the actual person yeah. Right. The person who's viewing them and describing it, it tells you about them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, it's certainly not the the most um, problematic realms novel we've read in that area. Yeah, um, and that's why, like, I felt if I was having like an internal dialogue with myself, I'm like, this isn't as bad as some of the books, but it actually <laughs> makes me not I mean, want to really read it. I say that's faint praise. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And like, and and they are doing a lot of things, but I think all of the female characters had we knew some sort of like their love interests or something mm-hmm. like that. Where I'm not always sure every male character we did, but there was a lot of the male characters being interested in other people too, I guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and he, I guess he implied in the interview that in later stories there are some some romance uh, angles to some of the stories as well that but involves both some of the men and some of the women um and wasn't there a thing with oath as uh, eoth as in terms of him having because uh, there was a, a woman that he ended up um uh, a cleric that he ended up with um and then there was a whole like was what what was this mutual interest and how much of this was them both trying to manipulate each other and how long it had been like there was discussion of how long it had been since he'd like been with anybody and um it it, it all it was interesting um <laughs> but it all became a thing you know yeah well then there was uh, uh the other guy who had been involved with one of the women mm. and was all mad because I think it was Aoth had come and piqued her interest after she had already dumped him or something. Yeah, that, that was that same woman. It was the it was the cleric yeah. that he ended up... And then really early on, b- before the dragonborn, in quotes, attack, right. uh, one of the male characters, and I think it's Aeoth, is, is like in an embrace with a woman, mm. and he smells the uh, like acid or something, mm. and that's, that's what tells him that there's a... Uh, some things that come right. approaching, right? No, yeah, and although uh, I do, I mean, I'd have I'd have to go back and read the section again. I do get, get have the general sort of remembrance that the the scene with Aeroth and and the cleric whose name I still don't know. That's um, Sarah. Who's it? Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Uh, that 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 instance was relatively sex positive i mean it wasn't it didn't feel uh like she was manipulating him as much as he was manipulating her and there there wasn't uh an imbalance there so i thought you know that's that's something (laughs) but it's so funny because most of the time you get the description of the woman in a way that's Mm. like like quote unquote male gaze type of way, like mm-hmm. oh, like barely wearing anything under hand under the shift thing, mm. but you don't get like a it's, good it's, description of the experience from a woman's side. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, and there's a certain element of if you're not looking for that kind of stuff, you you don't even notice it because it's so ingrained uh, in the way uh, a lot of books are written. You know, right? Yeah. So yeah. I see that. Cool. Any other thoughts? None from me. All right. I think I'm good. Cool. Then the the line to close it out is yours, Tracy. All right. (laughs) Well, those are our thoughts on the book. Let's throw it to Eric and Jeff with the author, Richard Lee Byers. All right. And now, Eric and I are here with the author of The Captive Flame, Richard Lee Byers. Richard Lee Byers, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I think you've been on once before with your with the Reaver. Once or twice back yeah. in 2014 or thereabouts. There you go. Yeah. So good times. And we're happy to have you back. We're happy to, to find more excuses uh, to, to read some of your work. So uh, to start off with, we usually like to ask authors uh, when we're talking about novels, um, what is The Captive Flame about, being as concrete or esoteric as you would like to be? Um, it is about uh, Alf Thazim and his uh, mercenary troop uh, going to work for a uh, dragon who is also the ruler of a country and who turns out to be kind of a uh, Caligula kind of ruler mm. and uh, how they cope with that. Okay. Now, now the the character you mentioned, Aeroth and his, and his companions, the the Brotherhood of the Griffin that the series is named for. Um, there's there's some history there, um, and, and some of that background is sort of hinted at uh, and alluded to in the story. So so talk about how do you how do you sort of spin off these characters or, uh, or to create this series, but help the new readers who may not have read that series sort of uh, follow along. 
Okay. Well, Alf had his um, origin in a previous trilogy called The Haunted Lands, mm-hmm. which was about the uh, Fae. And um, he starts out as a um, kind of a scout and a courier in a uh, army legion of of Fae that where they everybody rides a griffin. And uh, and he, the story the story evolves over basically a century. I was given the job of um, I've given the job of showing how Faye changes from the way it was basically in D and D three point five to the way they wanted to be in four point mm-hmm. And um, so you know I need I needed characters that uh, would span that period of time. And uh, so the first thing I had to do was was stop Al's aging process which turned out not to be very hard actually because the forgotten realms had this cataclysm where there was this uh, blue flame that was going over and creating chaotic unpredictable effects the spell plague right yeah the spell plague so i thought okay so it so what it does to him is it stops his aging process so he'll still be around for book three which is decades after the first two books Hmm. and then i and i then i knew you know he was going to flee because he was part of the uh, he was on the side that was um, going to lose to Zaz Tom mm. yeah he, Zaz he, he Tom sided with he sided with the Zulkers who were more uh, mercantile uh, sort of uh, inclined and Zaz yeah Tom well was... they were all bad but he, sub- sure. he, sub- he in his judgment which was correct Zaz Tom was worse than the others so so he sided with them and then um, they lose, so everybody's get out. Got to get out of Thay, or they'll be horribly killed by Zaz Tom. So, so he flees at the end of book two. Then, in book three, he's got to come back, and he's got to come back in a way that he can affect the events in in book three. So, I, and and he also he had to do something that was he had to do something that made sense for him to do in the intervening time. So, my solution to all that was well, after he gets kicked out of after after he flees Thay, he becomes the leader of a mercenary company. Mm-hmm. And so and then they come back and, and they're in book three. And then my editor, uh, Susan Morris said, you know, I really like these guys. Why don't you just keep writing about them? So I did. And of course in creating them, I had to create uh, the characters who were his lieutenants. And so, you know, they all needed a little backstory. that was hinted at mm-hmm. in one way or another. Uh, Gaiden was, a was, a one of those, uh, you know, medieval style, hostage children hmm. that were given to the elves and uh, Jezri had this um, horrific uh, childhood where she had was being uh, where she was a, a slave being raised by, a slave to these elemental giants that had kidnapped her and uh, and so, so everybody had some everybody had some baggage and Alpha's kind of the um, at a certain level, the, the father figure that's that's you know helping them sort out their lives. Hmm. Although that's kind of that's kind of a recurring thing in the background. In the foreground, of course, you have you know monsters and sorcery and swordplay and all the things that we D and D people love. Okay, so so then how does how does the the transition from the haunted lands into Brotherhood of the Griffin sort of evolve that that dynamic? Um, well, I, I, I can't, like I said, I set up the company itself in, um, in, uh, in the third volume of the Haunted Lands, and then it was just a question of, um, that was just a question of kind of where do they go next? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, they, like, once, uh, once again, at the end of the story, they have to bug out of Fay, and so then they're looking for their next job, and, uh, so, and so I, I was limited to a certain degree geographically because they're, um, it had to be somewhere, kind of near Thay, it wouldn't make sense if all of a sudden they were in Waterdeep or something. Hmm. That's not their part of, of the Forgotten Realms. So um, so I looked around and I looked through the source books for something interesting and I thought, oh, Chazar, this dragon has been, you know, missing in action. What if, for what you know, what if he came back and um, started to rule his country again and, um, and what if his years of... Uh, Kind of captivity and torment had driven him crazy, hmm. and they found that and um, started. So, and then I had to, um, like I said, I had. To, it's when I knew I was going to be doing more of the characters. That's when more of the backstory started to fill in. You know, Jezri's uh, history of terrible abuse made her, you know, made her have this uh, phobia and loathing of being touched, mm-hmm. which I did quite a bit, uh, quite a bit with because. Um, 
because they're by that point in the story they they're kind of turning on him she's sort of has to control her disgust and play along and i have a i had a uh, kind of a doomed romance between her and gaden where her they actually love each other but again her psychological problems are um keeping uh, you know keeping them from ha- really having a real romantic relationship mm-hmm. and he's kind of this embittered cynical soul because of uh his childhood and this that kind of throws a little more gas on the fire of his cynicism so mm-hmm. it's kind of evolved you figure uh, sure. you know you figure characters need backstories they need uh they need personal issues on top of the big story t- problems like, you know, how do we kill the monsters and all that. So, you know, I just kind of figured it all out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the end of, of Captive Flame, which is the first book of the Brotherhood of the Griffin series, Chazar hasn't quite uh, fully taken control back of, of Chacenta. Um, that's sort of, I think by the end of that is is more or less he's been freed and they've cast the ritual to come back to from the, the, the Shadowfell. Right, uh, you know, and that's where it sort of leaves off. Um, so I yeah, that's what I said. I'm, I'm like giving away my whole story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's been a while since I wrote this. I wrote this, and sure. it's uh, it's hard for me to remember exactly where, where I, I quit. Off, yeah. book one. And then in my mind, it's all all three books basically are one story. So sure. uh, yeah, absolutely. I was noticing too that in Captain Flame, you had a lot of genocide from Akanol and uh, Dragonborn from. Time enter and you seem to develop a lot of that culture. You know that did you did you help out build up that culture in the game or? I've never specifically helped the game guys do the source books, but I think they have on occasion looked at what I did in the novels in the novels, then put some of it in a later source book. Mm. And uh, with Dragonborn, I'm not sure that. Um, I'm not sure to what extent that happened. I know that um, Aaron Evans used um, Dragonborn in her Tiefling novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that she built on a little bit of what I had done. I think, I think my, my, my main influence, though, I remember when they were going to move on from 4th uh, edition to... Um, Fourth edition to the the current edition, and and you know tinker with the forgotten realms as they always do whenever they move editions. Somebody was in favor of like getting rid of all the dragonborn. I said, "What well, they play a big role in this thing I wrote." I don't like, you have to get rid of them all, but I think I convinced them to keep some of them around. Yep, I must have, or Aaron would have been able to use them. Right? Yeah, we have read Aaron's books before, and when I was reading your Captain Flame, I'm like, wow. And I had to check the timeline of when books were coming out to see who influenced who. And I'm like, oh, you probably influence Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I did a little bit. In fact, I, I, I seem to recall that she and I emailed back and forth a little bit. She had a couple questions about Dragonborn and what I, I what I thought they would do. Or mm-hmm. I I think maybe I think maybe sort of things about how the clans worked and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, you could tell there was some some um, some good communication and collaboration there because. Uh, your depiction of of Dragonborn and Timanther, at least in Captive Flame, um, feels like it's the same setting as what she had written about in her Brimstone Angels book. So, yeah, well, that uh, that that's cool, and I mean, and it's uh, you know, it's it's one aspect of Aaron being a really good, talented writer that mm. she does that you know she respects the setting as as I've always tried to do, and and you know maintain consistency with everything that's gone before which of course doesn't stop people from you know emailing you and telling you what you got wrong but sure. I, I do try <laughs> well that's that's one of the the pitfalls i think of a, of a writing in a shared world anyway there's always going to be little things here and there that are, that are interpreted differently or what have you yeah well of course the forgotten realms is is such an old humongous world where mm-hmm. so much has been done and I always found that the, the the trick was was finding everything. Hmm. If I could find it, I could be consistent with it. But um, but occasionally it's like you know there's some source book where or, or some product where somebody wrote a little bit of something about something you were writing about, but you weren't able to um, you weren't able to find that in any kind of index or anything mm-hmm. or that anybody referred to so you just missed it and uh, but like i said i always tried yeah sure and and one of the things i'm i that always sort of 
stokes even more of my interest uh, in in this era of your Forgotten Realms work is that you you've chosen to sort of explore a part of the world that I think is really intriguing and oftentimes gets short shrift. Right? People people look at at Thay as as a source of villains, but never really explore Thay as as a setting. You know, uh, Chacinta seldom gets used. Uh, Timanther and Akanul, other than other than um, Aaron Evans visiting there for the, her last couple of books, um, doesn't get hit very. You know, that whole part of the realms doesn't get a lot of attention, in my experience. Um, so, so I'm curious why it is that you chose to to sort of focus in on those that part of the world. Well, um, well, part of it was just um, part of it was just um, you know the fact that I was. Like I said, part of it, I was asked to write a trilogy about Faye, and then my characters coming out of that trilogy, they had to be in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. They couldn't, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense for them to be far, far away from that. But I also just think that's that's a uh, a cool part of the Forgotten Realms that hasn't, hasn't been used as much, mm-hmm. particularly in, um, particularly in some of like the most. I guess, you, for a better word, you'd call them, you know, high-profile kind of books. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Salvatore and Drist are kind of over in the West when he's above ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. Um, Elminster is kind of uh, the Dale Lands and Cormier. I mean, I think. Sticks, and, it sticks uh, the Heartlands pretty well. Yeah, and so, um, you know, be, being somewhere where they're not is is seemed like a good idea I took in terms of... Um, well, there's a couple of advantages. One is that maybe what I write seems a little bit fresher because I'm not going back to the same place where all these other beloved books have been. Mm-hmm. And um, also maybe there's a little, I uh, talk about continuity, maybe I'll get tripped up a little bit less mm-hmm. because there's a little, there's less for me to keep track of in terms of what Bob and Ed, a whole bunch of other people have done. Um, like I said, I, I, but I do think just I think it's kind of the, the Northeast part of Farron is, is a cool area. Mm-hmm. If you read my, uh, my uh, year of rogue dragons thing that's roughly in the same area too Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of the the bob salvatore strategy right i've talked to him several times and he will tell the story of he kind of chooses where to set his forgotten realms book by by largely by avoiding what what everybody else is doing you know don't somebody else is over there i'm gonna avoid that area so i don't i don't run the risk of having to to corroborate too much with with the the setting and making sure we're all on the same page so yeah, that's that's what I do. It's I think it's a particularly good strategy um, if you're just getting into a new shared world setting. I always try to look at okay, where's like the blank piece of the map? Mm, <laughs> right. I think I think I'll go there. You aren't quite as worried about that after you've been in the setting for a while, but sure. uh, particularly when you're starting out, it's a good strategy. Sure. Now you said that this series was was written. Um, Sort of in a time period when when fourth edition was going, but there were some hints. At least it sounds like by the end of the the series that that the new edition was coming along. So I'm curious about how how the additions of the game sort of influenced. I mean, obviously fourth edition had things like spell scars and the spell plague, and that plays a a pretty major role in the development of the main character. But but how does that sort of tie into the the story elements that you choose to use or not use or, or what have you actually I think that uh, all the Brotherhood of the Griffin stuff is is fourth edition well within fourth yeah yeah I mean they, I think they had uh, sadly basically uh, decided to wind down the uh, forgotten realms fiction line before fifth edition came in so uh, mm-hmm. or ju- or as it was coming in so mm-hmm. I didn't um, I guess the the only book that I wrote, um, the only book that I wrote that I guess was a fifth edition kind of book was the Reaver, and the, which is about basically the transformation of the realms, kind of from fourth edition to fifth edition. Right. Just like uh, the Haunted Lands was about the transition from uh, three point five to four. Sure. So you, you but, got to, you got to book bookend uh, fourth edition. Yeah, I <laughs> guess I guess in a sense I did. Uh, I think so probably I'm probably not the only one, no, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, in fourth edition was um, you know fourth edition was you know spell scars and uh, and so Alf is a spell scarred character mm-hmm. and uh, in in his own way and uh, magic you know magic works 
a certain way. To be honest, I always felt like um, 3 and 3.5 were better systems in terms of um, giving a fiction writer more to work with. Okay. I mean, if you read um, if you read a description of how a spell works in uh, 3.5, and then you read a description of how the same spell works in 4th, 3.5 gives you a lot more information. Hmm. In terms of you know the character is uh, you know the character is moving his hands and using a fo- using a, a you know a spell component or in this one he's just talking mm-hmm. and 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 that that's just really useful when, when you're trying to write the magic and describe it and make it vivid. Sure. And um, the thing the thing that always really bug, bugged me about um, for, uh, fourth edition was it's de-emphasized the. Um, it, it it or DFSIs radically changed how healing was supposed to work. Mm. In 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 three point five, you know, clerics do the healing. It's described very clearly how they do it in terms of you know they draw down they draw positive energy and they infuse the target with it and uh, you know basically accelerates the he- in, in healing process. Or at least that was the way I always interpret it. And then in fourth edition, you have things like. Um, like a, a war leader character who's a couple hexes um, away f- or a couple spaces away from the uh, the wounded character can like give a stirring speech and it heals the guy, you know. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I I never really knew how to work with that as a fiction writer. So if you um, if you read Brotherhood of the Griffin, you'll see basically how I fudged and how the healing still works like it works in three point five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of the wizardry does too. Yeah, well, and I keep holding out hope that maybe someday we'll get to find out uh, whether or not fifth edition is is as uh, helpful for writing fiction as uh, for third edition was. That would be great. I've got, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I've got. Uh, I'm Brotherhood of the Griffin in my head is far from over. Okay. I mean, if you've read the, uh, you know, if, if you read the five books that. Uh, that they let me do, you know, there's all at the end of the fifth one, there's um, the, the first three make one story and the, the fourth one, the fifth one make of the second story. But there's all kind of like dangling, uh, you know, plot threads sure. and foreshadowing of things that are going to happen in the future that I fully intended to write. But then they uh, then they uh, decided not to proceed, at least, you know, for now. So, uh well, someday so, we'll, we'll keep just, we'll keep the campaign alive. Yeah, that stuff's all in my head, but it's uh, it's not. I don't know when or sure. if people ever get to see it. Sure. Now, in in the Captive Flame specifically, that it there's basically three storylines going on, right? The the various lieutenants of the the Brotherhood of the Griffin end up splitting up and 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 pursuing three different goals, right? Uh, okay. There there's the uh, dealing with the the Green Hand murders in the in the city. Um, right. There's the the hunt for Chazar or the rumors of the the you know somebody's seen the dragon flying around in this area. Maybe it's Chazar. We should go check it out. Uh, and then there's the the fighting with the the giants that that more heavily um, uh, brings in the the dragonborn and, and that situation. Uh, right. And, and so of those three storylines, I'm kind of curious, what purpose does each of them serve? What what specific piece of story are you telling there that's going to be that's going to play out or, or what is it trying to accomplish? Oh, wow. You, re- you realize I wrote this a long time ago. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> I'm going to challenge um, you. Uh, well, I mean, um, I mean, to me, that to me, the, the meat of, of the trilogy is is ultimately what do you do when you're a mercenary and you find out you're working for this mad and only very powerful being? Hmm. So, um, so obvious. So, so within that context, the role of the Chazar thing is, you know, pretty obvious. Right. You're, you're setting up, the, you're bringing them back I mean, that's, and setting up that. That's really where I'm going. Okay. And I mean, that's, and, uh, as, as far as the green hand murders, I mean, I wanted them to come in and, um, I wanted them to come in and, uh, kind of have a, you know, have a problem that showed that, um, you know, things w- were in general not going well in the world or in, in that part, in, in the, in that realm. And, um, also, also I felt like they kind of needed to prove themselves. 
And because I, because I, as I recall, I set it up where it's like they, somebody hires them and there are other people that aren't thrilled that they were hired. Right. Yeah. That's sort of how it plays out. Yeah. And uh, so I felt like, okay, so that it would be interesting to kind of give them a situation where they have to prove themselves Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and kind of went over the power structure and also needed, um, I needed stories to introduce the, um, Dragonborn since I knew that they were going to be a, an ongoing part of the of the story, mm-hmm. and then right into the whole Chazar thing and the whole conquest. I mean, there's a lot going. You know, I, I tried to make the, that part of the that part of the world at that time pretty chaotic. Mm. In terms of there, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, and none of it's really good. And and the the fighting that involves the the what is it the Ash Giants and that kind of stuff that is yeah. that is that playing up a like the beginnings of a larger conflict that plays out later or is that uh, tying in more just a, a way of bringing in the Dragonborn more? That was basically their part of the story and bringing them like I said bringing them in. Uh, you know, bringing them in more. Yeah, I, what I was doing is, you know, I know, I know, I'm going to have, I, I plan, I'm going to have three books to, to deal with, and, um, and I'm, I'm going to have the a number of, of characters who are all. I mean, Alf is really like the hero, okay. but the way I write these things, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings. There's actually a lot of heroes who are each going to get uh, get their own storyline and screen time. So I, I kind of. You know, I kind of thought of a bunch of stuff to, and then uh, a bunch of different problems that hopefully will braid braid together at the end. Mm, okay. So, so part of the purpose was to give some of these characters uh, some some spotlight time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, they, I've got to I've got to introduce them, and I've got to have them doing uh, interesting things and dealing with interesting D and D problems right away, mm-hmm. and. Um, so you know you've got war, you've got these mysterious murders, mm-hmm. and you've got my dragon tyrant looming on the horizon. Then you have the, you know the relationship stuff that happens, mm-hmm. which, like I said, you know Jezri and Gaiden, and um, there, there's a lot of stuff that's going on with the, with the characters on an emotional level. That's kind of uh, you know you you know you kind of see it as you read it. Sure. And the the Green Hand murders, uh, you know, having having only read the first book of the series. The green, ah. hand, the green hand murders um, introduce uh, Tiamat as a as a player in the area. Does that does that pan out later, or or does the green hand murder sort of is this a one time sort of thing? That kind of gets dealt with early in the story. Okay, Tiamat doesn't ever come on stage. Okay, mostly I don't bring the gods on stage, except in the Reaver. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where I kind of, I kind of had no choice, and, and, uh, and, and kind of Chazar, right? He's sort of a god. Well, he thinks he is. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask him, yes. But Ed Greenwood has said that he never, when he was envisioning the realms, he never really um, intended for the gods to be on stage players. Right. You know that that that's pretty good uh, ad- advice because I always I always have a problem when the gods come on stage in a fantasy story and mm. like tell the the mortals to do something i mean i always feel like if i was a mortal character i would say well you're a god why aren't you handling this <laughs> sure well and at the same time though in in this story you have of like divinity is still very clearly a concrete presence in the world right, um, right. whether it be the the machinations of of the followers of tiamat or whether it be uh the channeling of of godly power to dismiss the demons or whether you know or the paladins um uh and the uh, other part of the story like there's a lot of divine inspiration and divine uh influence if not just being directly on screen yeah well if you're gonna write about uh you know clerics and paladins and cultists i mean you can't really get away from that i don't see how you really get away from religion in the forgotten realms but you can't um but but that's different than actually dragging the gods on stage. Sure, absolutely. And, no, and uh, I, think, I think that's a, a good a good balance to to find is is yeah. you know they but, don't they don't need to be on screen, but their their fingers are kind of in all the pies. There's no doubt that the the clerics are when they heal or work their miracles. I mean, the, the juice has got to be coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you have atheists in the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> I don't know how to be one. Sure. Well, uh, 
Eric, do you have any any last thoughts or any last questions? The only thing I was basically last thought. Uh, you did a good job of making an ensemble cast show up feel like a D and D, because as you were saying earlier, showing us different characters and all that, and felt like an ensemble that we're working together. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I think that I don't know why, I, but I that's something that I've always felt came reasonably easy to me. Maybe it's because I read Lord of the Rings a bunch of times when I was a kid <laughs> or something. But, uh, I've, I've, you know, Stephen Bruce, who writes the Jarek books, he's uh, and has written a lot of other things. I heard I was on a panel with him at a convention uh, a year or so ago, and he said that, um, he said like he thinks every writer gets, gets one gift, something that you can just kind of do, and it doesn't it kind of kind of comes natural to you. you. Don't work hard. Have to don't work. You don't have to work hard at it. And then, and maybe for me, that's writing like the ensemble cast mm. of heroes, because I've done a bunch of it, and it doesn't seem that difficult sure. to me. Okay. And and speaking of the ensemble, like you you have established more or less uh, what six or so lieutenants um, that the story focuses on in the Brotherhood of the Griffin. And I'm just I'm curious as I try to wrap my head around this this mercenary group. How big is the Brotherhood of the Griffin? Like, how many, you know, outside of the lieutenants, how how many other people are part of this mercenary group? Well, you know, I never, I never wanted <laughs> to say because I was afraid that I'd start killing them off and people would count, <laughs> and, and then you know, then I get the email that said there shouldn't be any left, and you're still writing about them. But um, I would guess that. Um, you know, and of course, it varies at different points in the story, um, the, 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 the whole story. But I would guess that there are maybe a couple thousand of them. Oh wow! So um, it's it's maybe, a, it's maybe a, not that many. It's an army, maybe like a thousand. But it, it's a big it's a big group. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, there were times where I'm like, is is this just like an extended adventuring party with with you know support? crew or is it is it a small army and it sounds like you're thinking more along the lines of small army so yeah it's definitely a small army it's a um it's a um the the core of them of it is the griffin riders sure who um in in book three of uh, the haunted lands or actually book two of the haunted lands when they um when uh, they when they're the losers in the war are evacuating Thay, um, uh, Alf basically takes this company of Griffin riders with him, you know. Mm-hmm. And when they when everybody gets out and the um, and the Zolkers say, you know, well, okay, well now here we are, and you know, you guys are still in service to us. You know, Alf's attitude is basically, hey, you know, we got you out. You know, Thay's lost. You know, I'm. I don't. I never really liked you either, <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm going to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to strike out on my own, and, and these all these Griffin writers go with him, and then from there, over the course of uh, decades, he starts building a, an actual mercenary army mm-hmm. around this Griffin writers. So by the time you get to um, Captive Flame, you know they've got uh, infantry and uh, you know guys on horses right. and. Uh, and, and artillery catapults and all that, in addition to the Griffin Riders. So it's yeah, it's a small army. Yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense because they're you know that when he's talking about you should send us to the front and that kind of stuff, I'm like, well, that a small adventuring party or even a large adventuring party could maybe turn a tide, but a small army is definitely you know <laughs> something that that somebody would be interested in sending to the front. You know. So. Yeah, I, if you if you noticed in the um, in the first chapter, there's a, it talks about how. They've arrived at the port in a whole bunch of ships. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So that it, that gives you a sense that it's not just you know a dozen adventurers or right. something like that. Right. And and then of course then 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 when you're writing this then you have to figure out there are moments when I want them to, I want to have army on army combat these big battles and then they're all going to be there but I'm, there are going to be moments when I want to write other kind of encounters and adventures and so then I've got to figure out the reasons to peel the. Uh, the important characters off from the group and send them off to do some little thing of their own. Sure. Which, uh, which I learned to do by reading, you know, guy, you guys know the sharp novels by Bernard Cornwell. I don't Eric, do you? I do not. Okay. It's their historical novels set in the Napoleonic wars. Uh, hmm. 
and, and sharp as a soldier. And um, uh, Bernard Cornwell is a very good historical adventure writer. And uh, of course, you know, sharp as a soldier, so you'd, you'd think he'd always be with his, his outfit. But uh, Cornwall comes up with um, abundant opportunities for him to like go off in, on his own, more or less. So I thought, yeah, I, if he could do it, I can do it. Okay, great. All right, so so any last thoughts or any last uh, I, things that you want to share with our listeners about the Captive Flame or what they can expect moving forward in, in the rest of the Brotherhood of the Griffin or, or what have you? Uh, any any last thoughts you want to share? Okay, well, it's um, like I said, if, if you want to get to know the characters before you read the Captive Flame, uh, you read the, the Haunted Lands, which mm-hmm. is uh, three books, um, unclean, undead, and unholy, but you don't have to. Uh, you know, the captive flame is the start of a new chapter in these characters' lives. Mm-hmm. It's um, like I said, the, fir- uh, the the first three books in Brotherhood of the Griffin are, are make one story. Then you read the next two books, and um, they make another story. And sadly, that's where it ends for now. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's um, you know, I think it's a story that's um, you know going to appeal to anybody that pretty much I hope pretty much anybody that likes heroic fantasy, and particularly heroic fantasy. In the realms, I tried to uh, touch on a lot of, um, you know, a lot of different elements from realms lore mm-hmm. and uh, make them work together in the story. Yeah, I, I think I did pretty well. Very good. Yeah, you're you're always uh, somebody that you can count on to to embrace the idea of the shared world and and bring in all those aspects and not hide from that. So, so well, I definitely definitely appreciate that you do that. Well, thank you very much. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, anything that people should be looking out for from you uh, or places they should go to to keep in touch? Uh, well, let's see. I've got, um, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but I'm now writing novels that are set in um, the Iron Kingdoms, you know, Privateer Press's setting, mm-hmm. which is kind of, and they're kind of, those, it's kind of a sword and sorcery meets steampunk kind of setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the first one of those is called Black Dogs, and it's been out for a while. Uh, and if they haven't juggled the schedule again, the next one is called Black Crowns, and it should be out soon. And I've got um, a collection of my uh, sword and sorcery stories about my character Selden is out from Rothko Press. It's called This Sword for Hire. And let me see. I In the... Also, in the very near future, I should have a um, book that ties into the Arkham Horror game, so it's Lovecraftian cosmic horror kind of stuff, called The Ire of the Void, out from uh, Fantasy Flight Games. And um, there's a bunch of stuff there. The best re- way to um, <laughs> best way to, to, to see what I'm, I'm doing is to, um, well, you can always look at my Amazon page. And uh, people can, uh, you know, follow me on, uh, on or friend me on Facebook or um, or uh, follow me on Twitter, and uh, I'll try to be entertaining. And uh, <laughs> if when I've got something new coming out, you'll see me plug it there, so it'll keep you up to date on my stuff. I I always enjoy the ape of the day on Facebook. So oh well, thank you very much. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm glad because those are getting harder and harder. I can imagine, yeah. There's a lot I'm, of grot on there, but I'm a big DC of, fan, so that's fine. Yeah, I'm running out of apes and I'm running out of jokes. But <laughs> I, 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 I keep plugging for now because I'm so, so. It's weird. So many people tell me they like it. I can't feel like I can't quit while there's <laughs> any life left in it. I, I mean, also, also, as you can, I'm sure you can tell. The point is to get people looking at my timeline, so sure. they'll. So if, you know, once so if they look regularly, then when I once in a while do plug a new thing, they'll see the plug for the new thing. So I don't want to stop on that basis either. But <laughs> mainly, mainly I keep I want to I, I feel like I should keep it going now just because, like I said, so many people have told me they enjoy it. Sure, absolutely. Well, and you've got a, a million books coming out, and the, I guess the uh, the Richard Lee Byers household is the is the house of never stop writing, right? You just always plug in. Um, well, try to be. I try. Uh, sometimes you sometimes you stop because they um, tell you that uh, okay, you're doing this book, and we're gonna send you the information, and then you wait you and wait. you wait, <laughs> sure. really, and you're not really doing anything because you're primed. You think you're about to start this one thing, mm-hmm. and a week, so a week goes by, another week goes by. I've been had been in one of those, a couple of those situations lately, and sure. probably lost 
so what should have been some productive time because of it. I am working on a uh, one thing I did write recently though. I am working on a uh, actually working on a game that um, n- not books based on a game, but the game itself. Hmm. There's a um, game that'll be out from uh, uh, WizKids next year, and it. But they're not. They're they're publishing it, but they're not actually creating it. My friends who are at the smaller game company Samurai Sheepdog are creating it, hmm. and it's called uh, Beyond the Edge, and it's a big uh, space opera, science fiction adventure kind of board game, but with um, role playing elements. It's really innovative, and um, I'm creating kind of story content which the game designers then take and say how the hell are we supposed to turn this into <laughs> gameplay but then uh, ultimately do very good very good so lots of things coming out everybody should definitely be checking out richard lee byers on twitter on yeah. facebook and everywhere else to keep up with all the stuff he's coming out get come out with because it seems like uh every other week there's something new <laughs> yeah well i keep uh, i keep plugging and uh yeah I'll, sometime Maybe by the end of next year there'll be a um, all original, not shared world, but you know just my stuff uh, oh, fantasy novel out from uh, Cohesion Press. But like I said, that's still months and months out. But uh, eventually, I'll eventually I'll have to write it, and they'll I guess they'll have to publish it. There you go. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. This is fun, and I, and I certainly appreciate you talking about something, even when you have to reach back into your memories and try to remember what was going on. So yeah, and like I said, you probably noticed me faltering a couple times, but uh, it's 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 not just it's not just the t- intervening time is that I've it's how many hundreds of thousands of words of story I've, about other things I've written since in between. Then. Sure, absolutely. But very, I did my best. Very good. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank no you. problem. All right, well, that's the end of our episode, so it's time to say goodbye. But before we do, we want to say thanks to Eric for joining us for this episode. Eric, where can people hear more from you? You can find me on Twitter at Eric M. Pack. That's P-A-Q. And Eric with a C, no K. Yes. All right. We also want to thank everybody who supports us, like Noble Knight, our sponsor for this episode, as well as all of you who shop there and mention the podcast when you do. But we also want to thank those of you who support us in other ways, like using the affiliate links to Amazon and DMs Guild. And, of course, to our patrons over at patreon.com slash Show. patrons like Stephen Robertson, Jeremiah McCoy, Robert Aducci, Matt Bible, Doug Palmer, and Mark Richmond. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find me at Magic on Twitter and SaradarkMagic.com. Find Jeff on Twitter at Squatch and Eric at Eric M. Pack. And if you want to find show notes and affiliate links and all that kind of stuff and other great Tome Show shows, you can head over to thetomeshow.com. That is our thoughts on The Captive Flame up next in September and October of 2017. And hopefully we'll start getting these caught up and, and, and up to date a little bit uh, uh, soon. We got some people working on the editing to catch it up. Uh, anyway, in September and October of 2017, whenever you hear this, we're going to be reading Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.